0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. It's good to be back. Uh, Angela Kay and I and the kids were gone for five weeks, so if you've come to Redeemer since then, uh, you're newer than I am. But for all of you, we're really... Thankful to be home in our own beds. I will say we got out of the car in Jackson, Mississippi for a bathroom break, and I encountered my arch enemy, humidity. (laughs) We had been in the mountains, (laughs) virtually no humidity. At night, we opened the windows and let 50-degree air in, and I thought it was going to die. So uh, we're almost glad to be back. Let's say it that way. Um, We were out visiting family and uh, being with friends, and as many of you know, I grew up in Oklahoma, and one nickname for the Sooner State is Tornado Alley, and I've personally been very near to five tornadoes uh, by the time I was in college, and I managed to squeeze four years of college into five, Um, so by my fifth year, I saw my fifth tornado, I think that's prophetic. And several of the tornadoes um, that hit when I was younger, um, they were so severe that we actually had to get get out of our house, run up to a church building that had a basement, and hide in the basement with other families in the neighborhood. And if you've ever watched the movie Twister, how many of you seen the movie? Yes, that was filmed 40 miles from my house. When, when I was in the ninth grade, it was uh, written up in the, the Daily Oklahoma, in the newspaper of our state, that the meteorologist, the chief weather guy at one of the big stations, I believe it was CBS, his name was Gary England. This guy made a million dollars a year. This is 1985, more than professional athletes at the time, to tell people what to do when a tornado hit. He was world famous, traveled all over. And the thing about tornadoes is that they are an awful, monstrous event. Um, What happens is that warm, hot air is pulled up into the atmosphere. It mixes with cold air, and it starts this churn, and eventually that churn gets more and more energy, and that's why these storms just seem to come out of nowhere, because they're just gathering up more and more hot air and energy, and eventually that, 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 churning system starts to turn and it forms a funnel and if you've watched you've seen the damage of a tornado. Being near one or even in the midst of one is a frightful, very fearful few moments. It sounds like you're standing right beside a train. And um, one of my extended family members lost their life in a tornado in 1999. A massive tornado hit Moore, Oklahoma, and 36 people died. 583 people were injured. 1,800 homes destroyed. 2,500 homes damaged. The, this tornado was what they call a Class 5. It's the worst, sort of like a Category 5 hurricane. <clears throat> and it was it was the 118th tornado to strike Oklahoma City since 1890, hence the name Tornado Alley. This particular tornado did a billion dollars worth of damage in 1999. These storms are immense. And I know a few years ago here in Greensboro, a tornado hit, and it was devastating. Just to give you a perspective, that tornado that hit Greensboro is what's called an F2. So the tornado that hit in 1999 was three times larger than the one that tore up part of Greensboro. The reality of life is that storms come and storms go. Often the concept of a storm is used to describe the trials that we go through in our lives as well. There is a storm raging. There's the calm before the storm. And often, some will say there's even the sun shining after the clouds and rain. And perhaps you know very well what it means and feels to go through a storm yourself. Perhaps you're even in one now, or you've just emerged from one. Or you see clouds on the horizon of your life. That's the power of storms. On June 26th, a, a tweet came out in the Anglican church. Articulating a serious scandal in a diocese that implicated friends and colleagues. It's been picked up by news media outlets and it has all kinds of allegations and damages surrounding it. Real people's lives have been injured. A man who is a leader in the church was arrested and incarcerated. And as we left for summer with high hopes of a break, quickly. We got the call and saw clouds on the horizon, and this storm is still raging, and it will go on for quite some time. We all have storms. How do you respond when storms come? Some of us experience great fear and anxiety, which is natural and normal. Some of us anger. Some of us sadness. Some of us withdraw. We run away. There's a number of normal responses. But in today's gospel, we're going to see a storm hits, but it's set in the context of a larger perspective, a larger narrative. The larger narrative is, who is this person, Jesus? Last week, Drew mentioned the feeding of the 5,000, really the probably 25,000, is one of the two miraculous stories that appear in all four gospels, only two. Appear in all four of the Gospels. This one that we heard read, and of course the most important one, the resurrection. So we're going to consider this storm story this morning from this perspective, this larger story of faith and action. We're going to need to interact with about three gospels to do it this morning. So let's pray. Most loving Father, your your will, you will us to give thanks for all things to dread nothing but the loss of you, to cast all our care on the one who cares for us, preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties, and grant that no clouds of this mortal life may hide us from the light of that love which is immortal and which you have manifested into your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And may our hearts be fertile grounds to hear your words this morning. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So, what I'd like you to do is uh, get into your scriptures. We'll start in John chapter 5, so, sorry, chapter 6, with the feeding of the 25,000. Help us understand the very story that Ashley read from Mark this morning. So, Here's the setting, as you probably heard last week, but I need to continue it on to help us understand this miracle of Jesus walking on water. So Jesus looked up and saw this great crowd coming. He had compassion on them. He says to Philip, where shall we buy bread to test him? And Philip said it'd take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each of us to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far could this go among many? And Of course, as you may remember the story, or if not, John chapter 6 describes it very well. Jesus takes those little gifts. He prays a prayer over them. He breaks them, and he gives them out, and he feeds, arguably, thousands, 25, 30,000 people. And it says that they were filled to the full. They were stuffed. Angela Kay and I ate at the melting pot this summer, and we ate so much that we hated ourselves afterwards. <laughs> um, so that this is describing the context here. They are full, and they notice this guy has some amazing power that he could do this and, of course, they quickly began to talk about their agenda for Jesus, their goal for him. And their goal was that he would become their king because he could fill their stomachs. If he can do that, then he could throw off their problems and their circumstances, their oppressors. And they began to, to conspire to grab him. And Jesus, it says in John chapter 6, verse 14, They began to say, surely this is the prophet. just like we heard about Elijah and Elisha who's come into this world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew. Shows us the immense character of Jesus. He withdrew because political leadership was not his aim, but the redemption of all things. Nothing wrong with political leadership. That was not the aim of Jesus in this world. He certainly had political leadership because he's the king of the universe, but not in the king, not the king that they wanted in this day. And so Jesus goes up on this mountainside to pray. It's this quality of intercession in his inner life that he spent time with the Father. And then it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples. He commanded them, "You disciples, get in that boat and you go to the other side of this lake." He withdrew them as well from this political machinations going on, probably because they themselves would have been susceptible and caught up with it. And the disciples are out on a out on the boat and they leave after dinner and it says in mark chapter 6 verse 47 later that night the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land now where they were crossing it's about a 4 mile uh rowing experience <laughs> so they left at dinner time and by the wee hours of the morning they'd only traveled halfway a storm had come up on the sea of galilee And it says that Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they shrieked, they cried out, they screamed because they all saw him and were terrified. Something tremendously remarkable has just happened in this moment. Jesus sees his disciples straining and striving. Jesus sees them struggling. Life is struggle, and it is a strain. Some of us can feel we're paddling against the wind. We're trying and striving to live our lives, and we're getting nowhere. Think of that. They'd only been paddling eight hours and got halfway across the lake. You ever felt this way? I'm paddling my boat, the boat of my life, and I'm trying as hard as I can, and I can't catch up, and I can't keep up, and now here's winds coming against me. The Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level. You go down to the Sea of Galilee it's not as far down as the Dead Sea, which is about 1,200 feet. But the Sea of Galilee was particularly susceptible to cold wind coming over the mountains and hitting that sea and instant storms rushing up. So here's the disciples on a quick john across the lake. And all of a sudden, a storm rises. And they're on this little boat in the middle of a sea. And the fear and anxiety sets in. And they can't get anywhere. This is why verse 48 has stood out to me as I've prayed through and thought about this passage. Jesus sees their straining, He sees our straining. He knows the battles and the paddles that we're pulling, and He cares. Perhaps watching His friends from a distance, He saw their. Helplessness. It's impossible to miss a group of people out in the middle of a lake, rowing their hearts out and not getting anywhere. And Mark just presents this nonchalantly. Jesus strolls out on the water and he comes to them in verse 50. And it says, Immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take courage. It is I do not be afraid. What is the number 1 command found in scriptures? Anyone have a guess? It's not be afraid, it's rejoice. That was a trick question. The second greatest command is do not fear or do not be afraid. Jesus comes into the midst of their struggle and their fears and their straining and reminds them who he is. Now, The language, the way they translate this is a little clunky. No one today says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. We might say it this way. Jesus comes to them and says, take heart. I am. It's a little bit more familiar in our biblical language. I am. It's the way that God describes himself. I am who I am and who I always have been. This is the, the interesting part about this is the disciples have been sent by Jesus out on a boat. And this is the same Jesus that they have seen him do, the miraculous. They knew he had power over nature. In Mark chapter 4, he had already calmed the storm once for them. He had power over sickness. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He had power over demons. They saw him change water to wine. And friends, they saw him feed the 25 plus thousand people. What they didn't know, what they hadn't really grasped, was his care and his love for them. This is why the passage that Doug read is so important, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, in the love of God, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. These disciples hadn't grasped that yet. Which is why, even though they'd seen the miraculous happen, they're sitting on a boat, paddling and afraid. And how much they needed to understand that they had to trust Jesus. He calls them, oh, you ones of little faith. And in this instance, we'll see their faith expanded. Peter then, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 14 and just check up on me and make sure I'm telling you the truth. Peter, in all great boldness, how could we not love Peter? He says in verse 28, Lord, if it's you. They thought it was a ghost and they're shrieking. He says, tell me to come out to you on the water. Jesus says, come. What a great invitation. Come on. Then Peter got down out of the boat walked on the water, and he came towards Jesus. But then Peter saw the wind raging. Oh, gosh, I'm in the middle of a storm, and I'm walking on water. This is crazy. He begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, and he caught him. What does he say to Peter? You have little faith. Why did you doubt? I've often read that verse as sort of a snipe, sort of a sarcastic dig at Peter. You silly rabbit, why would you think you could jump out in the water and walk on it like me, you of little faith? I think it's much more compassionate. Peter, you need faith. You need to trust me. And if you trust me, all things are well. All manner of things are well, even when the storms are raging. What's fascinating is that it says immediately that he, Jesus climbs into the boat with them, the wind dies down, and they were completely amazed. They were astonished. But verse 52 of Mark chapter 6 is crucial. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What does that mean? It means this. They had seen Jesus do the miracles. And they knew he was from God. He was probably like the Elijah. But they didn't know he was God. Their hearts were hardened To that truth. Our hearts can understand all the dimensions of the faith, the church, how we serve, we're to love, we're to give. But it's very easy to miss why we do this and who we do this for Jesus, the Holy One. See, the disciples hear this massive turning point in their life, this massive change is they see Jesus for who he truly is, and they believed. And they went from confusion and concern to confession. Another pastor says they went from worry to worship, because Jesus rescued them. Psalm 89 says, Who is like you, Lord God of my, Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Matthew tells it a little bit more explicitly. Matthew chapter 14, verse 32, it says And when they climbed into the boat and the wind died down, then those who were in the boat, the disciples, They worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. What a great praise song. The crowds then uh, immediately find Jesus after they land on the shore, after this amazing experience. Remember the same crowds that Jesus had left, the same crowds with an agenda for Jesus' life, Many of them had walked eight miles around the lake to see him again, to find them. They'd sent boats out to search for them. Boats from all over the Sea of Galilee were dispatched. They were waiting for this Savior, this King, to be anointed, and they were going to do it. They had big plans and purposes. And in John chapter 6, in a very... A very bizarre way, Jesus begins to disabuse them and dismantle them of their agenda for him, the miracle worker. John 56, 53 says, Very truly, I tell you, in a sermon to this crowd who are are begging for him to be the king and to rescue them from their, their circumstances, the storms raging in their life, Jesus says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now it says in verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I won't do it. Andrew will come running at me, but it's as if Jesus did this. His theological holy mic drop. You think I'm here to solve your circumstances. I'm here to redeem everything. You of little faith. You expect little of me just to change your storms. I've come to save you. After his sermon, of course, the crowds leave. It's a terrible church planting moment. He had thousands and he ran them off. There's a famous pastor in L.A. His name was E.V. Hill. He said, said, I I had a church of 3,000 and I preached them down to 30. And then I preached him up to ten thousand. Like, well wow. um, the people who heard Jesus' words were utterly turned off by his teaching. It's offensive. We want you to fix our circumstances, but you want to save our lives. Jesus' mission was the salvation of all things. Now, I don't mean in any way to marginalize our circumstances. Jesus saw them. Jesus got into the boat with raging storms. There's a a worship group, Casting Crowns. Some of you probably know them. This song always gets me when I hear it, and it, it starts this way. It says, I was sure by now, God you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. But once again, I say amen, and it's still raining. As the thunder rolls, I barely hear your whisper through the rain. I am with you. And as your mercy fails, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands, for you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side, and though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. So the amazing large Jesus fan club is disbanded except for the disciples, except for the ones who saw him walk on the water. And in John chapter 6, verse 67, Jesus looks at them and says, You do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Perhaps it was at this very moment that the disciples began to truly realize who Jesus was. Who do you think he was sitting here this morning? Can you imagine what they're thinking? After watching him walk on water and probably being very familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, Job chapter 9 verse 4 says about God, His wisdom is profound, His power is vast. Who has resisted Him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in His anger. He shakes the earth from its place and He makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the seas. Well, what do we see happening? Mark chapter 6. You can turn back there. Verse 53. The kingdom of God breaks out and people are saved. When they crossed over after Jesus' very profound sermon to the the fan club, they go to Genesaret and anchor there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus, and they ran throughout that whole region, and they carried the sick mats. Sorry, they carried the sick on mats To wherever they heard he was and wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside. They placed the sick in the marketplaces and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Fascinating thing about that word healed, it's the word. Sozo, it's similarly related to the word saved. Today, in the storms, people are still hungry, and they are still in need of his touch, even just to hear his voice. This is the power of Jesus. What do you want from him? Your circumstances changed? rain to stop? Or do you want him as the bread of life? You never hunger. Do you want him as living water? For whoever drinks it never thirsts. Amen.